This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. In this GHIL lecture, Carsten Janke talks about the Hanseatic League as a national project. Today, the Hanseatic League is anchored in the general consciousness of Germans as the secret superpower. Around 1800, however, the Göttingen professor Sartorius chose it as the subject of a major work because he could find nothing more irrelevant than this, quote, half-forgotten antique, unquote. How could a half-forgotten antique become a superpower? The lecture will trace the mnemonic strategies which were used by historians from 1830 to anchor the Hanseatic League in the minds of the Germans, first as a history of the Third Estate and the Free Cities, then as a proto-Protestant unifier against the hated Habsburgs, and finally as a Germanic national maritime power against England. Carsten Janke is an associate professor of medieval history at the Saxo Institute, University of Copenhagen. His main areas of interest are medieval economic and social history, and especially the history of the Hanseatic League. He is a member of the board of the Hansischer Geschichtsverein and author of monographs and articles on the history of the Hanseatic League and Lübeck. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure for me to be here in London on a strike day. My first day in Great Britain, it was a strike day too, so it's coming back as a déjà vu. It's 40 years, actually, in 82, the last time. And it's quite organized, I have to say. It's a great honor to talk on this place about the Hanseatic League. And I will take you with me on a journey through history from the Middle Ages up to today. And I hope I can share something about the enthusiasm of his medieval history and modern history to you. The main question is, Why do we know anything about the past? Why do we know anything about Richard the Lionheart? And why is his statue in Westminster, when he was still called one of the worst kings of England in the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century? Why do we know anything about uh, certain events and nothing about others? Today, I would like to shed light on these questions with you using an, the example of a topic that is very close to my heart, the German Hanseatic League. As a researcher who has been studying the Hanseatic League for over 30 years, who wrote his doctoral thesis and his habilitation about this league, and who is a member of the board of the Hanseatic History Society, I had never questioned our knowledge of this organization. But When I read the book Time Maps by Evia Tarsi Rubal with my students, I began to wonder why we know anything at all about the Hanseatic League. Who actually had an interest in keeping the knowledge of this organization alive and why? These are the guiding questions for the next 40 minutes. I would like to take you on a journey through time from the start on the beginning of the 19th century through the turmoil of the revolution of 1848, the unification of the German Empire and the militarization of the Kaiserreich, 
through the times of National Socialism to the present day. But before we turn to historiography, I would like first to familiarize you with the concept of the Hanseatic League as seen today. Today, June 2022, we consider the Hanseatic League as a loosely organized network organization of merchant and later of cities. This organization developed out of various regional alliances and acquired a definite fixed organizational form between 1350 and 1379. The Hanseatic League comprised between 300 and 400 cities of various sizes, from large cities such as Lübeck, Cologne, Breslau, Wroclaw, or Krakow, to smaller and micro cities in Northern Europe. The majority of these cities were, contrary to popular belief, inland, without direct connection to the sea. The main task of the Hanseatic League was, on the one hand, to protect commercial interests abroad and, on the other, to reduce transaction costs at home, for example, by conveying information and standardization. The Hanseatic League defines itself in relation to the English crown with these words in 1469. I quote, the German Hanseatic League is not a society, societas, nor a community, communitas, that can be defined by secular or canon law. It has no common affairs, nor a common treasury, no common seal, no common syndic to conduct common negotiations. All this is not found in the Hanseatic League. And the German Hanseatic League is not a society, nor a cooperative community, but is a group of many market towns, kiltates, cities, opites, and institutions which trade on land and at the sea uh, with their own goods, united in an alliance to ward off pirates, robbers, and other dangers on land and sea, so that their merchants and their goods would not be harmed. End of the quote. I think that really says it all. The organization developed at the end of the 14th century, took a firmer structure in the 15th century, and slowly faded away in the 16th and 17th century as forms of trade in Europe changed. It is an irony of history that the Hanseatic League did not receive official recognition until the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, at a time when its political and economic relevance had long since disappeared. In the end, the cities of Lübeck, Hamburg, and Bremen were the last stewards of the Hanseatic legacy as they were responsible for the maintenance and administration of the Hanseatic processions abroad, including the steel yard in London. At the beginning of the 19th century, these cities did everything they could to finally be freed from their burden of heritage. The result here in London is the construction of Cannon Street Station, which stands on the ground of the Hanseatic steel yard. So, why do we know the Hanseatic League at all? The first modern Hanseatic historian, George Sartorius, 
a professor at the University of Göttingen wrote in 1802 that he had turned his interest to this organization because he could not have found anything more apolitical and unsuspicious for his research than, I quote, this half-forgotten antiquity, end of the quote. In the upfields of the Napoleon area, the Hanseatic League served for Sartorius only as l'histoire pour l'histoire. At the same time, however, he created a amniotic basis with his work. This basis was to be developed over the following 200 years into what we know about the Hanseatic League today. So it starts with nothing, an half-forgotten antiquity in 1802. In order to understand the memiotic development of the Hanseatic League, we must be in mind that in the 19th century, it was the professors and academics on the continent who built nations with their work. From the North German region, it was above all the historians and politicians, Leopold von Ranke, and somewhat later, Georg Weitz or Heinrich von Kreitschke, among others who shaped the historical understanding of the nation with their works and with their activities. They saw themselves as small German, but Russian, also Prussian thinking and anti-Catholic politi uh, politicians. Their understanding of history corresponded to that what Iviatasiro Babel calls a zigzag course of memory. In Rankes and White's understanding of history, German history reaches first peak with Charlemagne, and from there, a huge peak under Otto the Great, the Ottonians in the 10th century of Frederick Barbarossa, a little bit later. After that, it was all downhill, especially after the Habsburgs, who were propagated as Catholics, took power. Only the Reformation, and especially Luther's appearance on the Diet of Worms in 1528, represented an intermediate high point. But then came the Hohenzollern dynasty with the great elector in the 17th century, and with it, Germany's splendor rose. This image was to become even stronger with the founding of the empire in 1871. Now, the Hohenzollerns outshone even the Atonians or Frederick Barbarossa. This image of the rise and fall of the German empire had only one flaw. The citizens had no place in it. There are no place for citizens in this structure. But it were precisely the citizens who had gained a new self-confidence after 1800 and above all through the progress of industrialization. If the project of a unified German nation was to succeed, the citizens had to preserve their own medieval history. As early as in 1758, Imer de Fatel had propagated in his Les Droits de Gens that a nation must be aware of its own history in order to emerge as such. This idea, was taken up by the liberal politicians of the formats, also the period before 1484, 48, sorry. 
the influential group of professorial politicians emerged to actively create a new historical consciousness. This was all the more important because the liberal politicians of the 1830s and 1840s saw the citizens as the sole bearers of a German national consciousness. In their eyes, the citizens were the people and the people were the nation. And if one wanted to build a German nation, it needed a history of burgers. It was this gap some national liberal academics and politicians sought to fill with the Hanseatic League. George Sartorius has died in 1828 and in the midst of working on a new edition of his work. The Hamburg city archivist and liberal politician Johann Lappenberg was then asked to rewrite Sartorius' work. It was Lappenberg, and you can see him here on a column in the city hall of the city of London, eh, city of Hamburg. It was Lappenberg who gave the Hanse its first political twist. Lappenberg wrote in his introduction to the new Sartorius book, and I quote, it was above all the lack of unity of the nation which made the cities of Northern Germany great as Italy had been in earlier times and which had to lead to the emergence of the constitutions and associations which nourished the vigorous sense of the citizens and were able to secure for them the full enjoyment of what they had acquired. If it remained beneficial to the inhabitants of the country to maintain and strengthen the point of union which was given in the sovereigns, those cities knew how to find and to develop it in themselves, whose free constitutions could blossom more quickly, more freshly in the small territories of limited princes and counts than was possible under the scepter of arbitrary kings involved in constant costly feuds with their neighbors." End of the quote. Sartorius' Hanseatic Confederation became the German Hanseatic League by Lappenberg. The citizens of the cities, the burghers, became the bearers of the unity of the nation against costly princes with their constant wars. This concept was taken up and reinforced by Lappenberg's Hamburg colleague, Christian Frederick Wurm. You will never have heard about him, I think. Wurm was a professor at the Hamburg Academic Gymnasium and constantly tried to convince the city of the importance of this institution. To this end, he held evening lectures dealing with the Hanseatic League, among other things. For Wurm, the Hanseatic League around 1840 was not only the embodiment of the unity of the nation, no, it had even more contemporary political components. Firstly, the Hanseatic League was an example of how Germans, like the English, had lost their colonies through wrong policy. He was thinking about America at this time. The loss of the Baltic countries of Livonia, allegedly colonized by the Hanseatic League, was to be the reason for now in 1840, creating their own new German colonies and administering them better. Secondly, for Wurm, the Hanseatic League was the expression of economic cooperation and prosperity. 
This was now embodied in the German custom union, the Solverein, which a united small Germany was to join. He wrote, and I quote again, Imer de Fatel lists among the duties of a nation that of getting to know itself. This need for self-knowledge has awakened very vividly for the Germans. It can be promoted non-insignificantly by acquaintance with the cause of Hanseatic history. It is precisely the relationship with Livonia that reveals a selfish colonial policy, the consequences of which were felt while the cause was hardly known." End of the quote. In 1446 47 Wurm, Lappenberg, von Ranke and Weitz joined forces to create a liberal national worldview for the Germans. They initiated a project to publish the most important documents on German imperial history and Hanseatic history in order to support the self-image of the German nation. A good 10 years later, the publication of the Reichstag recesses, the recess of the imperial diet, and the recesses of the Hanseatic diet began. And they are still continuing until today. However, Ranke's, White's conception remained the primary one until today. Even the publication of the Hansa recesses could not really anchor the Hanseatic history as the medieval history of the third estate in the consciousness of the German nation. Instead, since 1846-47, the Hanseatic League has been seen as a supplement to the general history of the empire, quasi a side history for certain regions. This is due to the fact that by 1870, various competing Hanseatic ideas had developed. On the one hand, we have Lappenberg, Wurm's conception of the Hanseatic League as the political embodiment of the bourgeois free will against the princes. This concept lost more and more weight at the end of the century, especially after Bismarck's empire had proved to be less than citizens-friendly construction. Then there was a second liberal national conception of this league embodied by the German author Gustav Freitag. For him, the Hanseatic League was above all an anti-English trading power that embodied German superiority. His view was reflected in all school textbooks until modern times. And there was the German historian Dietrich Schäfer. For Schäfer, the Hanseatic League was above all the expression of a successful German naval policy in the Middle Ages. Even at that time, the Hanseatic League at sea had shown the English who was the real master of the sea. And that was now to be restored. As early as 1874, Schaefer wrote to the Hanseatic History Society, I quote, Germans think of seaworthy, sea-dominating citizens of their cities when they hear the name Hansa. Richard's research will destroy many cherished notions, but it too will always look with pride on the German Hansa, end of the quote. And he elaborates, it was the Hanseatic League that preserved the unity of the nation and 
the most tangible form when everything in Germany, not excluding the emperor, became particular. The Hanseatic League remained our nation on the sea, German. Through two centuries and more, the Hanseatic League has gloriously flown the German flag on European waters at a time when there was hardly an empire left, when the banner of the empire was dishonored in shameful flight by the Hussites. There was a Germany on the sea. End of the quote. It was Schaeffer's view that prevailed after 1871. Emperor Wilhelm II was taken a lot with the fact that the citizens of his empire had already found again the Catholic Habsburgs in the Middle Ages, forgetting that everyone was Catholic at that time, and that Germany had already had a powerful fleet in the Middle Ages. This idea of a German naval power already in the Middle Ages was well suited as a model for the imperial fleet policy at the end of the 19th century. So it is no wonder that several German battleships had been given name Hanse by 18, uh, 1918. And this is the last one. And it was sunk in Scotland in, 18, in 1919, as many other battleships too. But Schaefer had not only made the Hanseatic League, whose members were mainly inland cities without ports, into a seafaring power. The anti-Semitic and national conservative historian and politician Schaefer now also made the Hanseatic League the symbol of a Germanic cultural carrier in the Baltic Sea region. The Hanseatic merchants had only really cultivated Northern Europe and they are led trade monopoly had brought not only prosperity to this region, but Germany should strive to restore these good old times. Schäfer became a professor at Humboldt University in Berlin in 1903, and thus one of the most influential researchers of this time. He, and above all his successor Fritz Röhrig, charged the Hanseatic League with Turkish value. The German, Germanic, Hanseatic merchant was the symbol of a German anti-Semitic self-image. At the same time, Rorik in particular styled Lübeck as the queen of the Hanseatic League and along with Nuremberg, the most important city for the German bourgeoisie. This is the reason why Elliot Bombers destroyed Lübeck on Palm Sunday in 1942 the first German city to do so. Lübeck was not only a densely built, easy, accessible city. No, the alleged crown of the history of the German bourgeoisie was hit here with catastrophic consequences. One such consequence was the loss of history. In preparation for enemy air raids, Germany's most important archives were moved to mines in the same year, 1942 including, of course, the Lübeck archives. The archives in the mines were first looted by American soldiers in 1945 and then taken to the Soviet Union by Soviet troops in the same year. There, they were distributed 
to the individual regions via St. Petersburg and Moskva and were lost to Western research. The majority of the archives in the Soviet Union were here until 1989, when Gorbachev returned them to a united Germany as a gift. A smaller part remained in Russia and was accessible to Western research until February the 24th of this year. This means that research into the history of the Hanseatic League came to a relative standstill between 1942 and 1990. On the one hand, the concept of a Germanic Hanseatic ethnic superiority was no longer that relevant at least to the political public after 1945. On the other hand, the lack of archival records from Lübeck and other cities made it difficult to reassess the Hanseatic League. Instead, the old concepts lived on. For example, the National Socialist Hanseatic book by Paul Pavel from 1941 was reprinted again and again. The last reprint is from 1983. On the other hand, research needed a fig leaf, as Fritz Röhrig has discredited himself for his undeniable closeness to the Nazi regime. The way out was the Hanseatic book by the Strasbourg professor Philippe Dolanger, which appeared as La Onze in 1964, in first in French, in a short time later in Germany. And this is one of the few books translated to English too. For decades, La Onze was the indisputable Bible of Hanseatic research. However, Dolanger was not only a close friend to Fritz Röhrig and his students, he also passed on Schaeffer's and Röhrig's ideas slightly softened to the following generations, including my generation at least. There was also no reorientation of research in East Germany either. The old Hanseatic image lived on at the universities of the GDR, only here it was given a socialist overhaul. Thus, the Hanseatic League became a bourgeois class struggle against the feudal aristocratic structure, which ended certainly in the economic superiority of the German, German cities in the Baltic Sea area. This has led to the fact that today we have to deal with the divided image of the Hanseatic League in Germany. On the one hand, there is the research that has been trying to fathom the form and appearance of the Hanseatic League since 1990. Countless works and contributions have cleared up the political overformations of the 19th and 20th centuries, denationalized the Hanseatic League, and also tried to take away the Hanseatic League's seafaring military character. Instead, the Hanseatic League was and is typically compared to the EU or network. We have also given the Hanseatic League an international character, destroyed the idea of a Hanseatic trade monopoly and worked out the cooperation with trading partners all over Europe, including England. It turned out that the new ideas of contemporary politics also create new historical perspectives. However, these efforts did not resonate with the wider European, British, and German public. Here, 
the Hanseatic League is still a German trading monopoly that was only out to destroy the economies of other countries. The Hanseatic League shows German power and arrogance. Hanseatic merchants always go at the sea and they nationally wage war mainly against England and Denmark. But some things have changed. In Germany, the historical consciousness of historicism, which was based on White's zigzag pattern, for example, and which reached far back into the Middle Ages, became obsolete after 1945. Instead, German historical consciousness is shaped by the events of the Third Reich. In this context, the middle classes have lost their role as bearers of a national historical consciousness. Today, citizens define themselves less and less as honorable, well-behaved merchants. Instead, other role models, mostly of American origins, are sought. This is also reflected in the Hanseatic League. The Robin Hood of Hanseatic history is Klaus Störtebecker, a pirate who was allegedly executed in Hamburg in 1401. In 1897, a statue of Simon van Utrecht, the counselor who allegedly brought down Störtebecker, was unveiled in Hamburg. A short time later, one of Hamburg's main arterial roads was also named after van Utrecht. Today, no one knows Simon van Utrecht anymore. Instead, there are Stuttebecker festivals, magazines, and stories. And in true German tradition, a beer brand is also named after him. In 1976, he was given his own monument at the place where he was supposedly executed in Hamburg. The good, righteous citizen of a Hanseatic city had had his day, and with it, the role of the Hanseatic League as a symbol of a unified nation born by those same citizens. The gaze had turned from the honorable merchant to the Robin Hood of the seas. His adventures degrade the Hanseatic pepper sacks to extras. At the same time, the Catholic-Protestant contrast in Germany also lost its relevance. The merchants have thus also become obsolete as proto-Protestant representatives of a North German bourgeoisie. Instead, they can now function as world citizens who, like their descendants in the EU, wanted to create a unified Europe through trade and change. Whether this corresponds to medieval reality, however, is more than debatable. So, what remains of the Hanseatic League? And why should we know anything about this league at all? In today's Europe, the Hanseatic League serves mainly as a reason for medieval-style folk festivals. The new Hanseatic League chose the continent as an event from the Netherlands to the East. Here, the Hanseatic League certainly serves to promote modern international understanding. The fact that this concept can be applied in so many different countries also shows how thoroughly the Hanseatic League has been depoliticized. In this respect, we are back to the stage of a non-political, half-forgotten antiquity. And yet, 
the Hanseatic League is worth studying. I wouldn't be here if I don't think this thought. Perhaps not as a predecessor of the EU. This idea is too reminiscent of the comparisons with the custom union in the 19th century. And the EU is not exactly very popular in this country either. But the Hanseatic League is an example of how trade and traders can span borders and continents, how little religious and political antagonisms matter if those involved are only looking for common interests and how international Europe already was in the Middle Ages. The Hanseatic League was one of many ways to minimize transaction costs. The solutions of the 15th centuries are in many ways similar to those we use today. And the problems of the Hanseatic League are amazingly similar to those we still experience in our days. The constant complaint about the slowness of communal administrations, the constant balancing of interests, the constant slow search for a toothless compromise. All these also characterize the Hanseatic League. And yet it achieved its goal as long as it was economically opportune. The English called the Hanseatic League a crocodile, dangerous and yet only half to be seen. But at the same time, they work closely with those same crocodile-like merchants. We cannot really be sure what the Hanseatic League really was in the Middle Ages. Even our ideas today depend on our own point of view. But like the Hanseatic League in the Middle Ages, we also can say today what it was not. It was not a symbol of the unity of the nation. It was not the expression of a German Germanic bourgeoisie or the bringer of culture in the Baltic Sea region. Nor was the Hanseatic League a maritime power or a trade monopoly. Today, the Hanseatic League is best understood in terms of economic theory. In any case, it reduced transaction costs. It supported the international movements of goods and it facilitated trade outside its own legal spheres. Whether that is enough of a definition, however, is up to you. Judgments always depend on our current political standpoint. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.